Greetings, listeners, and welcome to On The Spectrum podcast, a show that explores the many complexities and diversities of being on the spectrum. We are your hosts, David and Lorena. Hello, Dave. Hello. And today we are joined by Daniel Tony. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. Um, would you like to start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, of course. So, uh, so I'm a, I'm a trained actor. Uh, I'm a writer, and uh, at the moment, I'm uh, rehearsing ready for my one man show called Mine or Unapologetically Autistic. Great title. I like it. Nice. <laughs> that's yeah. cool. nice, nice and snappy. To the point, I think. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> awesome. Like unapologetically me. I like that. That kind of. <laughs> yeah, literally, literally, just like this is who I am. Just sort of accept it as it is. Is that the basis yeah. of this show? Because I haven't seen, you've seen the show? Yeah, we I saw the show with Nairobi. So. It was really good. Yeah. Uh, we had our moments of laugh and I need to recognise another moment of, I'm going to cry that you don't do that to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, gives, it gives you a mixture of different feelings throughout, I think. So it sort of gives them um, sort of a, a humorous, but also sort of candid, blunt depiction about what it means to be on the autistic spectrum at various phases uh, of your life. So a lot of the show um, it sort of ranges from uh, my, my initial upbringing when I got my diagnosis all the way up to sort of sort of going into adult life to university like living independently and so it's a sort of um it's a it's a relaying of different experiences uh that people can sort of they can sort of observe it and sort of take things away from it oh brilliant yeah, that's really awesome. good so talk to us a little bit about how was your childhood uh, being autistic okay um well i would say i was i was definitely different i was definitely a lot different to how i am now i was definitely a lot quieter a lot less confident in the way i would approach things um luckily i was fortunate enough to be diagnosed at the age of three so obviously there were that was, it was early enough where my family could put um a lot of things in place to help me within school um within within different places i would go um, but of course, going through school, it was obviously very diff- it was very difficult to make friends or sort of mm-hmm. game with the social crowd. So um, I did I did often spend a lot of time sort of by myself in my own little world. Um, I mentioned in the show that actually I spent a lot of time doing what I call daydreaming, where. I would sort of pick a location, um, whether it was around um, a conquer tree or whether it's just like a really isolated bit of the school, and I would just walk around it and I would pret- and I would just act out scenes with different cartoon characters. So I pretend I was a space ranger or I was in Thunderbirds or something like that. And to me, that was quite nice because obviously being on the spectrum, you like that aspect of control, or you like that aspect of sort of being able to sort of control your own reality. So for me, that was quite helpful. But of course, to everyone else not on the spectrum especially kids of my of my age it did look it did look a little bit funny a little bit weird to some people i think was it like regulating your emotions or what do you think you got out of that um i think a lot of it was learning how to pro like literally learning how to process basic emotions because like i said i wasn't really sort of the most vocal with my peer group i didn't really engage in conversations and even when i did a lot of it was mimicry so a lot of it was just from things i'd heard or things i'd seen so i'd sort of use those those daydream times the sort of safe spaces to sort of engage in my own conversations in a world that I was in control of and that I was in control of the reactions of so I could sort of dictate how this world went mm-hmm. so I think on the one hand it was a bit of a learning curve but on the other hand it was a bit of a it was it was my safe space sort of doing things like that mm-hmm. yes fair enough do so you think that's what led you into sort of drama and, and things in that area the fact that you used to have these sort of uh, characters in your head that you play with Oh, absolutely, yeah, and definitely, definitely, even pick, even picking it now, just picking up scripts and exploring new characters, is something I really enjoy doing. Like I remember, like you know, my first experience of doing doing theatre or sort of that fire to that 
passion to do theatre in school was when um, when we had a travelling theatre company come to see us um, at the primary school where I did a lot of this daydreaming stuff. Um, and still, I was quite <clears throat> I was quite vocal. I was quite quiet, and I ended up being picked uh, as a volunteer to go up and help out uh, on the stage. Um, I, nick- I was given the nickname Whatnot, which was quite which was quite funny. I had to do all these little things like assist, little like do magic tricks that would go wrong. Mm-hmm. And then after the show, I just remember like all like the older kids who I used to be really frightened of would you know they came up to me and like gave me like massive pats on the back, and they would say, "Oh man, well done! Like you were really good and everything." So um. I think that's sort of where. I first sort of found the bug for it and that sort of like, well, that sort of led me to where I am now, like yeah. writing my own show and being able to do it at both the Camden Fringe and, and the etc. at the end of this week. That's mm. great. That's great. Because in, in that case, you say um, that people that they were not really keen on or, or really interested in what you were doing, mm. just putting it on a stage in a theatre context, yeah. they were really willing to say, oh, well done, mate, you do really well. So how do you think your bees were with you in the school? how they behave with you, peers and teachers? I think, um, and I talk a lot about this in the show, I think peers were a little bit, you know, they sort of they sort of knew I was there, but they sort of didn't get why I was the way I was. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like, you know, my childhood best friend and everything, the people that I regularly get together with, they sort of knew what I was like, and there were people that I could be comfortable around. But generally, in a classroom setting, <clears throat> I was often quite scared to speak up. I didn't really, I didn't really sort of have that, voice in the classroom so mm. for me it did feel quite daunting sort of putting myself in that position and I think a lot of people knew that and I think a lot of people particularly like in particularly in primary and secondary school is something that people would like take advantage of and sort of take the mickey out of me for yeah. especially like as I got older <clears throat> yeah I remember in the show you were mentioning secondary school was pretty hard for you like because you, I think the difference are even more obvious and then mm. they, they are more cruel would you say yeah there was a le- uh, yeah there was a level of there was a level of cruelness I think even if they didn't know they were being cruel I mean to yeah. them I think they were just being like they were just being themselves but obviously how it came across was was quite cool so I think there was one incident where you know um I wasn't really that good at sticking up for myself so a couple of the older kids, um, you know, they would like fall over and claim, oh, I pushed them, I pushed them. And obviously I didn't, didn't really sort of know how to vocalize a way to defend myself. So obviously I just started crying like really, and I was really upset. And I think they sort of realized and they went like, oh no, like we might have, might have taken this a bit too far. Mm. And so they were, then, they were then trying to cheer me up, but by then it was too late. So yeah, I think um, again, like at high school, the artistic side was the way I, I could sort of escape from all that because a lot of them would sort of just do their own things but you know the artist in me and like everyone like all the other kids I knew that were into theatre you know we got on really well and that's sort of where I found my way to fit in in high school really and of course in high school we also had um, I was lucky that we had learning support as well so I was enrolled in a lot of these like classes at lunchtime and I would do like extra maths because of uh, because of my neurotype it made it quite different maths was quite difficult for me in school um and I'll go to learning support at lunchtimes I would just like do comprehensions and things so there were other things throughout the school that could really sort of help me sort of help me understand a bit more what it meant to be in the wider world you know as a as a neurodiverse person realizing that I could definitely go into, you know, further education in a way where I could, you know, I could solely focus on theatre. That could become my almost obsession as a lot of, you know, autistic people have like an obsession with some things. You know, my obsession was with acting and performing and the art section because it's an area where I felt really safe. It's somewhere I enjoyed doing. I could sort of be creative without that fear of judgment. And that helped, yes. that helped with a lot of things. And, I, and, and definitely as I got older, I started to become 
a little bit more, you know, definitely more creative in terms of writing. So um, even, you know, when I got to university, I, you know, I'd write shows with friends. Um, at acting school, we would create things together. And even, you know, even last year, writing, you know, writing the script for this show and getting it and getting it on at Camden. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of, I've sort of gradually sort of started to sort of start to broaden the horizons a bit more, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, and you put, mm. it sounds like you're putting yourself like fully into it and yeah. investing heavily. Yeah, I mean, well, you, well, you've got to be really if you're, you know, if you're an artwork actor, you sort of just got to throw yourself at everything and try new things. And a piece of advice we were given at acting school is obviously if you if you're not being cast in a few things, obviously you should try you should try writing your own things or try making your own work to put on to put on stage. Mm. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a go. What's yeah. the worst that could happen? <laughs> nothing really. No, not, not really. <laughs> you having a great time. That's things. Yeah. Right. So one thing that I remember as well from the show is that you were talking about your experience with girls. Um, with your first experience that was like uh, quite yeah. funny like, and sweet to hear because I think sometimes when we talk about autism, many people and probably many people in the audience oh. will think about. Uh, children that they are quite severe, they are quite, they have quite um, big difficulties to live on their own. But it's not always the case. Um, and then, yeah, they are like functional adults. They have their lives. They go to school. They go to university. And obviously, they have experiences with girls as everybody <laughs> else yeah. and every single teenager in the world. Oh, <laughs> Tell us, because um, oh, we, we had a good laugh in the show with you in that at that time. I remember that. Oh, oh yeah. Well. <laughs> As, as I mentioned in the show, <coughs> as I mentioned in the show, I was absolutely hopeless, like both both in primary school and secondary school. Like I, I, I just didn't have a clue. And obviously, that- I, sorry, I think it's how most of us feel anyway. But it's just, but it, 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 I, think it's, I think it's even worse. I think it's even worse when you're autistic because obviously you've got to put yourself out there and sort of take that risk. You know, in terms of you know love and relationships. And obviously, I didn't really sort of have that incentive to do that and as I mentioned in the show I spent a lot of my time in the shadows and I mentioned that anecdote where I once sent uh, two Valentine's Day cards to two different girls just because A I didn't have a clue B I think I was just indecisive and then obviously I got chased by loads of girls around the school and I didn't really know why <laughs> but yeah it was just like I just I just I had no idea so you know when I first you know when I ended up in my first like relationship as a teenager I was just like Wow! Right, so this is what everybody's kicking up a fuss about. Eh? So this, this is this is what all the cool kids are doing, isn't it? But yeah, it was it was sort of a nice it was a nice it was quite a sudden introduction, but it, it was it was a massive learning curve for me in terms of that level of interaction and that level of investment that you can put in other people, which at the time <coughs> I don't really think uh, I don't really think I had. Apart from obviously you know investing a lot of time in really close friends and family, mm. like in that investment in relationships and sort of how to navigate relationships mm. obviously I didn't really have a clue until that point and obviously you know then that breakup obviously then knowing what heartbreak is and then well teenage level of heartbreak anyway yeah, sure. um, yeah. and then sort of then going then sort of going on to my ne- going on to that next stage of life sort of have knowing the kind of things you can expect like those like the little signs you look for so you know when you notice that a person likes you and you know when you know to talk to another person uh, when you know that person's not interested so mm. I think throughout that first relationship even though it was you know even though it was a bit weird obviously there were a lot of cues I picked up from it that I was then able to take forward 
Certainly. So it's like it was growing. Yeah. So it, it's something that at least contributed to um, towards you understanding the intimacy um, and yeah, like you said, the investment that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a it was a massive learning curve, you know, as well as as well as the you know the empathy side of it as well, like understand understanding those complicated feelings. Mm. Uh, who was there to help you out, like on all of this? Because normally teenagers talk between each other with a group of friends. <clears throat> they avoid to us. Uh, advice to mum and dad in these cases. Uh, yeah. uh, who was there to help you? Like, who was there to to support and to set those conversations? Of oh, she, she she said this or she did that, and then I'm not sure because we all had this conversation yeah. when we were 16, <clears throat> I think, at some point. I mean, in t- in terms of the relationships, I think definitely, you know, obviously, definitely, my, you know, my dad was a big, per- my dad was a big person. I would okay. try and talk to about it, obviously, you know, because you know, being a teenage boy, that's the only person you can kind of feel like you can talk to. Yeah. Um, but also, it was it was also really sort of handy, like have it, like because I, I have a younger sister as well, obviously, sort of, and she was obviously like you know on the on the dating scene as well so obviously she she could give me like a lot of tips and you know in terms of like socializing and sort of like you know things to look for in girls um but also you know i i had you know i had some really you know, i had really close friends or people that like know me really well that i knew that were in relationships that i could i could sort of ask these questions about and they would actually answer it no problem really so i had so i think i had a very i had a very small but helpful support network in terms of navigating relationships or navigating okay. yeah or navigating the dating scene <laughs> that's great do you think um, do you think uh, your, your work in, in drama helped you with uh, empathy and, and putting yourself in other people's shoes things of that nature did you think that that is that another thing that maybe why you gravitated towards it was because it was it was sort of um, exploring that aspect that you were having trouble with um, absolutely, yeah, and I think um, I think anyone on the spectrum. Um, I think I think definitely I think definitely being on the stage or reading scripts or learning about characters that's a that's a really handy way for anyone on the spectrum to sort of grow a bit more in confidence because you read about these really intricate characters, you start to understand their thoughts and their feelings, and you perform through their voices. And the more you perform in their voice, the more you have that understanding about them, especially. Sure. Especially like when you get into the uh, the more theoretical aspect of performing arts, when you cover when you cover theory for GCSEs or A levels, and you start to learn about you know, their truer feelings, their intentions, the subtext, mm-hmm. you um you understand a little bit more about excuse me, you will learn a little bit more about sort of like the human aspect of being a performer as well, sort of how you know, how these characters sort of how, how to sort of embody these characters and sort of give them off in a way that's it's not just the character, it's also you through that character as well. So you start to see a little bit of your personality coming through these people. So I definitely think that theatre is a really good way for those on the spectrum to understand empathy and sort of grow with it as well. And inadvertently, you also learn sort of how to speak for yourself because you have these scripted conversations. And I think I mentioned in the show, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of conversations, especially for younger autistic kids, is like being given a script, opening it up and discovering it's blank. So you sort of feel like there is a sort of improvised feel to your conversations and you're a bit like, uh, well, uh, it, it, so you sort of like stumble and trip over mm-hmm. it. And I think the more time you spend with scripted characters, the more time you spend learning about them, the easier it becomes for you to form your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own speech patterns, your own voice, as it were. Because yes. then you think, oh, you know, I spent a lot of time talking in this character's voice. What happens if I, you know, if I try and you know, be myself for a bit or if I talk, if I talk as myself? Mm. Yeah, and the, those levels of um, in, almost like practicing improvisation and things like that I'd probably come in handy in your everyday discussions because um, if you're if improvising with your, um, with your peers in a drama group, then that you can, it's a transferable skill. 
mm. towards uh, social mm. groups. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Even yeah, you know, even in smaller improv games you do in drama studios, they're they're definitely helpful in terms of social situations as well because you're going to be presented with situations like that on a day to day basis. Mm. You're going to be presented with the unpredictable. Some things might not go as planned. So there is that there is that sort of mechanism in place, you know, in case that happens where you where you you're, you have that mental preparedness to navigate around it. So I think drama games and scripted characters are really useful. That's great. Yeah. Interesting. I've, I've been, because um, I've been uh, sort of studying up on drama therapy recently and mm-hmm. things like that. And I think there's a lot of applications that, and like you said, especially for people on the spectrum that want to start to understand these things or at least practice the, these kind of skills, it's a good, safe environment for them to do that. Yeah, I mean, even even when even when writing, because I wrote my thesis at university about um, drama therapy and uh, the autistic spectrum, and just reading through all these um, you know all these different techniques um, and reading through sort of how it applies to the wider theoretical side of autism, um, like what Professor Simon Baron Cohen studies at Cambridge University, well, what he teaches at university, excuse me, um, and looking at all these different workshops, and it's just remarkable to sort of see the impact and the reactions you get from autistic from those that identify as neurodiverse and sort of seeing how in turn that sort of led them to feel a little bit more confident and sort of find their own voices in the world because of that certainly and it's all like no medication it's all just um it's just through practice and through um mm. psych- oh, psychology <clears throat> almost isn't it in a way you know and i think it's yeah it's, it's a very interesting approach yeah so yeah, yeah. It's, that, it's that it's that learned behavior well yes. you know once you feel like once you sort of get into that pattern of uh, oh yeah this is how you this is how you deal with this then you can sort of go out into the world having those expectations and knowing how to prepare for it that's great like practice in a context that is under control under your control yeah. once that you practice a lot then you can yeah. go to the not as controlled as <clears throat> which I think is what we face but we the, all the face the neurons in your brain have started to make that connection <laughs> yeah. you've started to exercise you know your ability to do that so, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly that's really so, good that's, that's fascinating I like that so about uni um because you said that you probably your best period was when you were at uni. Absolutely. Uh, what make it really, really good? It was people. It was the environment. It, it, it was definitely. It was definitely those things, and I would say definitely the sort of semi-independent side of things. So mm-hmm. you know the fact that I wasn't going home to my going home to my home in the Midlands, going home to my parents every night. The fact that I sort of had my own my own digs, uh, my own accommodation, um, sort of my own chance to sort of find where I fit okay. in a, in a sort of, in a sort of semi-controlled environment. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you do when you go to university, you throw yourself at everything you find interested in, you throw yourself at all the, all the big societies. Um, and actually, um, I ended up meeting my best friend, like through all, like through like various like recalls that we would go to. And just, I just remember us both being very unsuccessful at the time, but, meeting all these people and sort of starting to network as you do when you're an artist, you know, that became really useful. Um, and of course, actually getting a sort of getting a bigger group of friends or a group of friends with a bit more understanding or had the, or a group of friends that had the same intense interest. That was something that was really useful as well. Um, like I mentioned, um, that obviously the big, the biggest one for me was Gilbert and Sullivan. So that was like the that was the big like music that was the musical opera society. Like you had you had the big musical theatre stuff, the big acting stuff. But I think Gilbert and Sullivan was sort of where it, it was for people with a keen interest in musical opera. But it's sort of where you went if you didn't really fit in. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going there by colossal accident. My best friend, we were walking back from one of our failed recalls. 
and he just said, uh, "Oh, I've joined this. Uh, I've, I've joined this society called Gilman Sullivan, but um, they're really short on boys. You want to come along for a taster session?" I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll see what it's like." And then I went along. Best decision I ever made because wow. I ended up meeting loads of really new people with that same intense interest. Like mm. we then ended up like doing, we did like three shows together over three years. We would do loads of little concerts. We would hang out. We'd go on beach trips. We'd go to the pub every Tuesday night. So it became almost like it became almost like a family network. So that sort of that sort of that in, that intense investment with other people. That's sort of where that's sort of where I learned it could how it sort of felt and how it could feel really fantastic yes with that Certainly. big group of friends that sort of had that same interest so i would definitely say it's where i was sort of started to become my happiest is where i sort of started to come into my own mm. it's interesting you said is it do you think that your independence had something to do with that as well because you're kind of um because i was the same at uni it was the first time i was away from home and sort of learning how to deal with money and deal with people because, you, know, <laughs> you didn't have anyone to back you up and stuff you know so, so do you think that, that that sort of helped it as well because you you gained your independence and then like you said you um you went out for, for projects that you were really interested in and then you, you found like-minded people yeah absolutely yeah it, indeed so it's where so it's where I started so it's where I started to sort of learn as I said where I start where I fit into the world sure. or where I fit amongst yeah. other people without that safety net or without parents or teachers sort of trying to sort of sort of nudge at me to be what I am so I was able to sort of find find my own feet and and sort of structure my own routine mm. in a way that I was comfortable with and actually and I, and I, and, I th and I felt really and I felt much better for it so you know I started I started eating because I I was quite I was quite I wasn't overweight, but I wasn't really thin when I went to university. But I started um, monitoring my what I was eating a bit more. I started doing a lot more fitness. You know, I mean, there was a gym literally around the corner from where I lived in second year, so I would go there. I would be there quite a lot. Um, I think, in generally, I was quite. I, I was. I was. Ha I was happy at university. Um, there were aspects where I started to do. Um, I suppose what a lot of experts call like masking. Um, because obviously, that's a term yeah. that's been associated yes. with autism yeah. a lot now. I did do. I did do some mask. <laughs> quite a bit of masking here and there, but I would definitely say like a good ninety to ninety-five percent of the time, I was generally. I was generally happier there. Yeah. And yourself, yeah, which is, which is what, what it matters, is it? Like, yeah. don't need to mask or hide behind anything. Yeah. Is yeah. is being yeah. able to be myself, yeah. which I'll, is what it should I'll, be. I'll say the I'll say the only thing specifically, like from first year to second year, I would say there was that there was that skepticism to admit or to just outright say that I was autistic because I mean, as I mentioned in the show, um, <clears throat> because of obviously because of school and primary school and like college-esque experiences, even like with groups outside of school, mm -hmm. there was always that level of sort of hostility and reluctance to sort of learn anything or to try and understand any, or anyone that was different. So obviously being met with all that, there was always that thought at the back of my head going, oh, like, should I tell anyone or should I, should I, admit to anyone that I was autistic and mm. straight away I went to no so for the first year of meeting all these new people I never admitted to any of them that I was autistic I just mm. sort of kept that to myself um I think people knew I was different but they didn't really they couldn't really sort of put their finger on it sure. but then after that first year once I once I had these friends and they actually you know they accepted me as I am I thought you know okay I think you know I trust them enough where I can actually talk to them about it mm. and I would and I said to them oh yeah I'm, I'm on the autistic spectrum and a lot of them just went uh, oh, oh my god I, I, ne I never knew that about you mm. so it came as a big surprise to them 
but that didn't really sort of change how they felt about me. Mm-hmm. But then when I realized actually, oh, there are people out there in the world that you can say you're autistic and uh, they will accept Nothing you. Happened. Yeah. It's it a big like, difference from the peers that you were experiencing at secondary school, for example. Yeah. You just felt like it was more uh, more accepting sort of like yeah. vibe. There was a there was a there was a sense of euphoria for me personally that came with that acceptance mm. at university, especially in this world where you sort of you know, you're trying to be yourself and sort of learning where you're fitting. Mm. The fact that you know you could be accepted out in the world with a group of people where you weren't being monitored all the time you know that you know that was one of the greatest sort of sensations I had when I said that, and people just went, "Okay, fine, you are as you are. Let's go. Let's get back to hanging out." Yeah, that's great. That's brilliant. That's nice. Um, how? Because uni is a big step. Because um, here in England, in Spain, we normally stay at home. If you're at home, you stay at home. It's not okay. like you do a massive change unless <clears> you live in a little village and then you need to go to a big town to be a uni. Uh, but for you guys, I know it's a big change. How your family lived that change? Um, I think my family were, I think, I think they were initially sort of, I think they were initially anxious about it or they were quite scared of it. Obviously, you know, the, you know, their firstborn child, the firstborn child who also happens to be neurodivergent going off to try and be independent for a bit. And I think their, I think their worry came from the concern that potentially there wasn't a lot of you about independent living or university life that I was, that I might understand, which is, which is sort of fair enough. You know, not everybody understands things at first, you know, about independent living especially when you're neurodiverse um so i'd say so i but they were generally they were generally they were really happy you know they didn't try and they never tried to control my career they never said oh you know there's no money in art you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or anything they were they were genuinely very accepting of my career choice and they did everything they could to support it so you know they would drive me to rehearsals we would go to concerts and things so you know generally they knew what made me the happiest and okay. they accept and they accepted me for it, which was probably like the biggest blessing I could think of in terms of, of yeah. in terms of you know in terms of pursuing a career in the arts. Um, but like back to the question about university, um, I would say they just wanted to make sure that steps were in place to ensure that I wasn't going to flounder too much, like in a newer educational environment. So mm-hmm. a lot of thing, a lot of things came from making my statement standing out and obviously applying for and applying for the DSA. <clears throat> but yeah, it just meant um, I would put my case forward. I mentioned what kind of educational needs I might need, any like bit of equipment I might need, and a lot of the things I got were really useful. So I got, you know, I ended up getting a, getting a new laptop with like loads of speech to text software and support software on it, which could help me if I was in lectures um, I got a dictaphone in case I needed to record lectures in case I missed anything um, I got um, I got a print, really cheap printer in case I needed to in case I needed to print off any resources so so generally that's that made things a lot easier because I felt more prepared I didn't feel I didn't I didn't run around in the morning thinking oh, oh my god I haven't got this on my lecture oh my god I can't do this oh my god I'm like my laptop keeps crashing left right and center what am I gonna do mm. so there was that there was less of a sense of panic when I started which I think would have been different if I hadn't been fortunate enough to be accepted for a DSA. Yeah, so that really did help you, just giving you that sort of um, support <clears throat> foundation for your day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was an, it was a good it was a good starting point. So when I actually started to start to go to lectures, go to seminars, I had the steps in place to ensure that I could understand everything and get everything down. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well, I would have these meetings. That we we eventually like got accepted to have these meetings like at specific times at university where I go to like um it was like a learning it was like a learning support at university where I go and sit one to one with someone and we talk about like how I'm coping with university life anything could be different okay. Okay. yeah so it's like a like a mini like a mini counseling session almost 
Okay. That's nice. Yeah, I didn't know that that kind of stuff was in place. But that, yeah, that's quite nice. Yeah, I, I can't remember the exact name for it, but like yeah. you would, we would go to you would go to the campus and you would have like set appointments and you would go for like a meeting with one to one with someone. Um, yeah, and, they, and we would just talk about how generally think how generally things were going or how I was coping. We're talking about how um, how now that you're. You, you still have that sort of that focus and that engagement with your imagination, but now you apply it to more practical things in your life. Yeah, so more things to do, like like a lot of what if scenarios. So a lot of um, uh, oh, you know, what if um, oh, what if the show goes like this uh, on the Sunday, or oh, what if I miss my last train back, or, or what's the week going to be like at work? Uh, so sort of like playing out those scenarios in in my head of the sort of like the most immediate probability mm-hmm. or you know if you're going for a night out like uh, oh right so we could start here but you know we'll end up going here and here and here I might say this to this person I might not say this to this person so it's a lot of um, it's a lot of like mental planning if that makes sense yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because you were saying that your original intent behind doing that was because it, you could control it and now you're kind of like you're trying to come up with sort of bullet points mm. for the evening just so you have that again I'm not I'm not speaking for you but I'm just saying is it do you think there's a control element there as well um in a way sort of like if, if I know I'm meeting a particular person I sort of know what we might talk about like you know we might talk about their family life uh, you know any projects they're working on their new job so you know I'm sort of like I'm sort of like mentally stocking up with quite with sort of things to know to ask them about mm. um i mean you know being you know being an actor and a performer ev- i think every actor has those what ifs you know what if they got cast in this particular role or if they miss out on an audition they were like oh how would i how would i play this differently mm. um and that actually happened um i i did a, i did like a, i did a script read for um a show that ended up uh, on channel four for this like character that was implied to be neurodiverse and I watched it, and I and I, and I spotted like the character who it was. I was like, okay, they're playing that a bit differently to how I would have done it. Right. Yeah, and I saw, okay. and I sort of think, right, if I was in that scene, if I was that character, how would I have done it? Yeah, because again, you said you you said earlier that you kind of put a bit of yourself into the character, and that probably makes it makes the character a lot more authentic if there's something real behind what's happening. Yeah, there's something real, and there's like a sense of uh, does this make sense? But a sense of sort of practicality within that character as well. Like how you know how would you you know how would you take it. A little bit further potentially mm. if you could yeah sure and yeah yeah it's just sort of like playing that those ideas in your mind yeah yeah exactly. that's interesting that's, that's why i asked because i thought that maybe it's um you know at the time you you said it was beneficial for you to do that but you practice it so much that you're able to sort of switch into it now as an adult and it's something that still has some some benefits yeah it's a, that's a bit, there's a bit more of a bit more of a seamless transition now sure. in terms of social situations obviously you know being being 26 and obviously ha- and having a having a really close like friendship group I think I think you sort of have to be now you sort of have to keep track of what everybody's doing like there are some friends sure. I, there are some friends I haven't seen for months <clears> on end so when I know we're having captions I'm thinking right what was this person doing what was this person doing recently oh yeah they were away on holiday doing this or oh yeah they were in this show so I know sort of like the the primary topics to know to ask them about and then just sort of let things flow from there yes okay. sure yeah it's, that's nice as well you're, you're you know practically thinking about other people and about how you can engage with them and what their interests are yeah and then allowing the conversation to, but you've got that as like a baseline yeah and things and things come from that like sure for example if someone's talking about like for example i was i was seeing a friend's band indie band the other night um in shoreditch 
and uh, I, I, I think I might ask him, uh, ask him. Oh yeah, you went back to Romania. How were things there? And he might, <laughs> and he might talk about. Um, oh yeah, this particular this particular Romanian dish. Oh, I've never had that before. What's that like? And mm. then they talk about these things. I'm like, oh, is there anywhere else around Romania that might be really nice to go to on holiday? And they talk. Oh, I've never been to this area. What's that like? So, so, so it's, like, it's like it's like it's like yeah. a it's like a tr- it's like a tree slowly being planted. All these like little sub branches mm. coming up. Just like oh yeah, I can ask about this and this and this and this. So yeah. a lot more things can grow from it if you sort of invest that time in that one thing. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, of course. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. Talking about that, all of these are like strategies that you you put in place at some point, mm-hmm. and then you've been practiced all those years. Like you, you master them. Yeah. Um, what strategies would you say that they taught you when you were a child? So for those ones that they are listening to us and they are autistic or parents or professionals, mm-hmm. so what, what would you say that it helped you out to to go through all these years and it was key things that you would say um key things oh that's that's a that's a very good question um i would say i'd say probably a lot of why i was able to sort of sort of survive as it were like throughout primary school and secondary school was just just that willingness to try things just to see what was okay. what what could work because there's always that temptation when you're on the spectrum when you don't have that confidence or when you're not really that vocal to sort of stay in the background and not really sort of say anything but i think i think trying is a necessity just so you sort of know where you stand with that particular thing anyway so you try getting to know people if it doesn't pay off okay fair enough you find other people that do get to know you um you try auditioning for this society at university they don't want you fair enough just move on to the next one but i would say it's just having that willingness to sort of test the water because the more you test yourself the more you learn where you're more confident the more you learn about the type of people you want to be around a lot more i would say Mm. um I mean, in terms, of so- in terms of social situations, I would say just, I would say, I would say if you're on the spectrum, obviously uh, trying to process a lot of information, I would say, I would say just that, just that, I would just say continual investment or just sort of knowing about people's lives or always finding things that they talk about to ask about, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might be in a, you know, you might be in a conversation in a pub with someone just really, you know, helping others feel like they're being heard because then when you help them in that way, and when they talk and when they're giving you something back you feel like you're learning more sure mm. you may learn more about that person and like you said you've got more of those bullet points to go to when you're having conversations with them that you know will engage them yeah and um, like you said will spread the the, the seed yeah know, I, so and, I, and, and I, I find it interesting to you know I find other people interesting I enjoy learning mm. more about other people you know sort of see you know, what kind of things they do what kind of hobbies they're in so I, I enjoy that continual investment in other people to sort of learn a bit more about what they're like because I'm not learning I'm not only learning about them I'm also learning a bit more about myself because I'm also thinking oh this is how I this is how I behave around certain people or this is how I process that particular piece of information or this is where I learn about you know different people's views or my views so I would say it's uh, it's definitely use use those interactions as a chance to learn or use those as learning experiences because like I said you learn you learn more not only about other people you learn more about yourself yeah that's that's really good um what would you say to your classmates if you were back to school and then you had them all in front of you uh, what would you say to them now as an adult walking around conquer trees is normal 
Let's take a shout. <laughs> no, um, I would say, I would, I would say, if I could say anything to my class at school, I would say just be curious. It's like I say in the show, be curious. Um, well, I mean, it's what Whitman said: be curious, not judgmental. You know, yeah. If someone's doing something a little bit different, don't look at them and think, "Oh, that person's a bit weird. I don't really want anything to do with them." Be a little bit more curious and ask them why they're doing it, or see if you can sort of gauge why they're doing it. You know, don't have the, don't be afraid to just be curious rather than just jump straight to being judgy. Yeah, and then probably yeah. apply your rule. Try what they are doing. Like you were saying you need to try and expose yourself and give a go to the world. Mm-hmm. I would say to them as well, give a go to what that person is doing because maybe mm-hmm. enrolling or engaging with with them in the game or in the it's as yeah. well a way to discover something new. Certainly. Certainly you might you might learn more about other people. You know, you might learn about this person rather than just the desire to constantly take the piss out of this person. Certainly, and I, and I I feel what you're saying because a lot of the children we work with they're non-verbal, but the, the the time that I've established sort of meaningful relationships has been when you you see those moments where you're like you said you're curious. It's almost like an investigation. Like, why is this happening? Why mm. is the, why is he getting upset about this? And then what is it about this that he loves so much? And then when you engage in that intensive interaction with them and you start to sort of realize where the enjoyment is uh, in them because they mm. can't verbally tell you. Mm. So I think what you're saying is, is yeah, I think that's that's very on the nose and very on point. Yeah. You need to just sort of be curious about, um, you know, if you're not understanding something, then and sometimes you don't need to understand it, but if you can engage in it yeah. a little bit, then you'll start to yeah. understand aspects also, of it. Also, that, also, there's always that, also with people neurotypical, I mean, particularly at that, that age or that particular time, there was always that compulsion to just be insanely hostile towards people that were different. Like in yeah. the in the show, I talk sure. about I talk about a particular a particular group of friends who obviously I'm not going to name, um, but the second I sort of mentioned I was autistic to this, or the second they knew about it, they sort of didn't really want anything to do with me. Like they weren't really curious. They just went to being straightly judgmental. They just went to, oh, this person's got something different. That makes him a problem. We don't really want to hang out with him. Um, to a point where I wasn't really sort of invited to things like that concerned, like the massive groups of people that I talk about in the show, um, like a big party that everybody was hosting. And, you know, I was one of the only people that didn't get invited and another boy didn't get invited as well. And coincidentally, we both had autism. And he decided to send, uh, a f- he decided to go on Facebook and send an email to the group saying, oh, well, oh, why wasn't I invited to this thing? And then somebody, like they came back and I swear to God, this was the actual response. They came, this one person came back and said, oh, just because you're autistic, you think you get special treatment, do you? So oh, really, so took the, yeah, that was, the other sort of yeah. side of it. There was that almost. default. They just, yeah. they just went to be insanely nasty. Mm. And, no, that's that's cruel yeah that it's cool but bullying is 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 a kind of thing that obviously it just exists in every school and is Mm. something that especially as parents you always worry about and things um happening um but at the end of the day i was um you know i got bullied at school as well and then kids can be they can be quite harsh um especially at that age because that level of understanding isn't there they don't understand uh, like what's going on but like you said if they were curious then they, they would have a totally different approach um mm. to what was going on in those situations yeah, yeah. even just how even just how the world looks on autism now, like nowadays is really different to how it was you know back when you know when we were at school um Certainly. i was having a conversation with one of my best friends actually someone who came to the show and they were talking about t- apparently it was a trend a trend at their school like say for example if somebody was 
being stupid, the, the, they would, you would say to that person, are you autistic? That was like their pet name for oh, someone nice. that was, that was like a pet name oh, for somebody wow. that was, that was like a pet name for someone that was stupid. <clears throat> yeah, no, exactly. You would say, hey, are you autistic? Mm, and it's kind of like, it's just, um, well, it's like, it's like the, the dark side of labeling, isn't it? Because mm. you know? obviously there's a, there's a good side to being labeled because it helps you sort of understand yourself a bit more and it helps you get the support in place and things like that. But then there's this other, yeah, there's that side of it. And, and again, I think it just comes from people that just don't have the understanding or the empathy to sort of deal with that. Yeah. So they just, like you said, <clears throat> kind of like, oh, I'm an invisible person now. You know? Yeah, and I think, as, I think as well, like, you know, myself and a lot of other kids that were diagnosed um, at the same sort of time when I was, we're sort of a product of a period of time when a lot of our autism, particularly in social situations and upbringing wasn't and schooling wasn't really truly understood so it's the you know there is um you know i don't want to say i don't want to use the word malice but there's that tense there's that sense of bitterness you have when you look back and think oh yeah like this is how we were treated when we were younger obviously now everything's a bit hunky-dory now so i guess there is there's i guess there is a little bit of jealousy for the gen for the generation nowadays that sort of get to grow up with that kindness with that understanding with that empathy Mm. and sort of one of the subtle things i try and say with the show is that you know this is how i was treated with autism back then now things are a little bit better and that's great this is just a reminder of how far we've come sure this is a reminder mm. of how people with autism used to get treated at this point in time uh, but nowadays things you know things are getting a little bit better and there's more representation within things so yes, it sort of shows that evolution of autistic treatment and representation you know both you know in life and in the media yeah certainly yeah mm. it, it, that's what i mean it is catching up isn't it and it is starting to um yeah but it's what we're talking about as well in the car but it's even though that there is Lots of represent. There are lots of representation. We are out there. We are pushing. We are showing. We are saying this is what it is. You still have someone that says, "Oh, are you autistic? You don't look autistic." It's like and how it looks like autistic, mm. or how I need to look like to meet your expectations yeah. about autism. Do you want me to do? Oh. Me to do, a, do you want me to do an autism for you or something? Yeah, so <laughs> like the yeah, autism so show like kind of thing, just mm. to tick tick all yeah. your all your. Just, so yeah, just, I've got. I'm giving you no eye contact. Let me just find my empathy switch. Yeah, that's all there. Anything else you want? Do you want, <laughs> to, do you want me to name? Do you want me to name all the Pokemon in alphabetical order? Do you? <laughs> In the order with which See, they were that, drawn. That's the perspective that I keep hearing. Is it, Can you I'm, do that? Yeah, <laughs> nearly. <laughs> that would be amazing. Autistic. <laughs> 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 but I was working with autistic um, children, and um, people would come up and say, "Oh, have you got one that's really good at maths, or have you got one that's really?" Mm-hmm. And so those perceptions are still going around yeah, as well. Right. When you've got those sort of stereotypical views, yeah, on, on what it is. Yeah, um, obviously. And the big, the biggest one, of course. I think we were talking about this earlier. One was mm. Rain Man. That's the biggest stereotype that people go to. Mm. Whereas actually, when you look at other forms of media uh, or other shows, like you have, uh, you have the A word. Um, you have Atypical, that series on Amazon. You have the Good Doctor. Um, which I think of, uh, as we see it, that's also that's also there as well. You know, a lot more, a lot wider depictions of autism. You know, with different individuals. Um, I remember uh, me and my partner. We recently just picked up uh, watching the A Word a couple of, a couple of months ago. A little, like we literally binge watch it, watched it. The A Word. The A Word. Um, so it's a re- it's a really good series on iPlay that I got really into about a young boy that's diagnosed with autism and his family try to try to find ways to cope with it. Okay. And it's, and there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things I observe. We watched the show, and I saw, I'll sort of pause things halfway through. Just like, hang on, this is technically how you know. This is technically how they might do it. They might do it like this, or oh, hang on, that's that's not how stimming works. They they, they do it like this. Mm. So I would like pause it, and I would like try and explain things to my partner when she sort of didn't quite 
get things. Right. Mm. But it was, it, was, it was just interesting to see that take on autism and the dynamic that neurotypical characters had with that one person that was autistic. Mm, certainly. Mm. I watched the atypical and the good doctor, and the, with the atypical, I had a, a good laugh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's another. another what do you think about those? Um, I mean, I seen. I mean, I, I mean, Freddie Highmore's depiction of someone with um, autism and advanced syndrome is is a really interesting take because it's a different side of autism that has more to do with the coping of it. So he mm-hmm. does a lot of he does a lot of stimming. He regulates himself in a particular way. He had, but he has that. He has that obsession, which I think, um, which I make, which I think makes him quite identifiable, and sort of the way he sees the world, like through super, like a supercomputer brain and everything. Yeah. And also, um, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, there's a series called As We See It, um, and that's um, it's about um, three autistic adults, sort of in care. So three autistic adults that are sort of trying to find their way in the world. One of them's really blunt and sort of doesn't really display much empathy. One of them is really sensitive to social situations. I won't really leave the house. And the other one is like quite forward and quite obsessed um, like with a particular aspect of being adult, which um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say on the podcast, but um, yeah, so it's... um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm miming it. Um, for you, you can probably guess what it is, but not so much things. They're quite obsessed with that. But it's th- there's three adults. Sex. Sex. There we go. There's three adults with different obsessions, and obviously you have the carers and people surrounding the carers as well. That sort of are there on hand to help these adults with various things that they need. So it not only explores the autistic individual, the neurodiverse individuals, but it also looks at people's lives around that as well like how carers help those um on the spectrum how carers relatives are affected with those on the spectrum how relationships are developed um with those on the spectrum so it's a it's an interesting dynamic i think to have with diff- with these different characters no, that's really good. We'll, we'll definitely watch it. Yeah. yeah I'm really um, right. So moving forward, mm-hmm. one thing that you talked about in the show as well, and we have a good laugh. Well, we, we laugh because at some point it's like you don't know if to cry or laugh or get angry <laughs> uh, when we are hearing when we're hearing you. Um, how was the what life for you? Because you talk about interviews and your experience in interviews when you are devastating between, so they say they're autistic, so then I say they're autistic. You even were offered a Kit Kat <laughs> at oh, some yeah, point. That was, a, that was that was a fun interview. That was a fun interview. Um, as as you do with <clears throat> as you do obviously, with, especially with neurodiverse individuals, they find it really hard to find employment, um, particularly within their skill set. In a similar way to you know how how some organisation, so how school kids find people that mention they're autistic. So like I mentioned earlier on, oh, this person mentioned they're autistic. Uh, this means they're very complicated, which means we don't really want anything to do with them. Mm. That can apply to some. That can apply to job interviews as well. Sometimes, and nowadays, nowadays they have diversity department. They have diversity segments within the application forms. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. outline any reasonable adjustments. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, it was always a bit of a hit or miss as to whether or not to say anything, because sometimes I would, sometimes I wouldn't, depending on sort of how self-conscious I felt going into a job interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and one particular incident in question, I had actually decided to disclose I was autistic. Um, and we went through the interview. They asked me about my autism and I talked about how I've overcome a lot of social barriers with it and how I feel like I'm right for the role because of what my autism brings to the table. Sure. You know, a bunch of other interview a bunch of other interview questions and everything, and not really much was said. Um, and then they just went to the draw and they pulled out um, a Kit Kat bar and gave me a Kit Kat bar. 
and I didn't really sort of know what to make of it. That is a very. Hmm. It was a bit. It was a bit weird. Yes. It was, it was a bit strange. Like I didn't really know. I, I went back to the train station not knowing what to take away from that. I was a bit like, did I get the job? Is this some sort of way of letting me down? I, I didn't get that particular job. So, right. I, you know, a bit of a swing and a miss depending on where you go with it. Mm. Um, but other but uh, other jobs, as I mentioned in the show, it sort of depends on sort of what society thinks that neurodiverse people are good for. Yes. I mean, a lot of the jobs I had leading up to what I'm doing now... Uh, were a lot of um, sort of were a lot of catering stuff. I mean, as you do when you are an actor as well, you do a lot of catering stuff. You do waiting, you do bar stuff. I was mainly pot wash orientated things, um, and um, there was another. There was a, a very particular incident. Actually, I do talk about the show, um, which I do get quite. I do get quite vocal about. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> that um, there was an incident where I was a pot washer in a job, and there basically there was. Um, there was essentially an arse load of washing up to do. It's like you know, you know, in films when you walk into a kitchen and there's like dishes piled up, up, and you wonder yeah. how the main character is going to clean all of it within a lot of time. It was a little bit like that, and nobody was really assisting me. They were all outside the front having a laugh, like talking about what they were going to do in a night out. And I'm I'm doing this job. I'm trying to get it done as fast as I can, but visibly I look annoyed. So. I have a bit of a, I have a bit, I sort of look a little bit like mm. this. I sort of look a bit visibly annoyed. And then when it comes to the kitchen, they sort of clock down. They sort of see I look visibly annoyed. And then I come in the next day, having done all the cleaning and stuff. And then somebody takes me to the side and tells me that I've been put on suspension because I've apparently been scaring the older ladies in the kitchen. Oh my God. But I was, I, I was, mm. I was doing an outside of washing up with no help. <clears throat> I asked for help several times. No, I asked for, I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't do a, Egyptian like clapping your hands and demanding assistance I asked for assistance didn't get any I look quite annoyed while I was finishing the job mm. I then come in the next day and then I get told I'm put on suspension because I'm scaring the older ladies in the kitchen but with, 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 by looking visibly annoyed at something that was out of my control I mean I could have chosen to just be I could have chosen just dead to be like that I could have chosen to, I could have chosen to be deadpan but I just decided to show my frustration through a look yeah but my question is if the same situation happened to a person that is neurotypical. Like, definitely you were overloaded, without help, mm. not treating in the right way. Meanwhile, everybody was laughing and, you know, having a good time. You were still working. Things weren't being said in a fair way. Mm. I think I'm a neurotypical person and I will be fuming. That That's the word, mm. fuming. And even when you don't say anything, I think my face sometimes can say, everything for me yeah. um i don't think my face will be like neutral poker yeah. you know I like would i be suspended in the same way and I, I mean I, I guess i guess my mistake was thinking that people would have common sense like they would mm. just like walk in and see there's one person doing all this stuff and not think to go one's a melt Mm. Yeah, so I think my mistake was thinking that, that having that expectation that somebody would come in and be like, uh, oh, yeah, don't, we need to get out of here, I'll help you with this. But no, didn't happen. Uh, and, I, and I guess, and I guess if it was someone a bit more, sort of someone a bit more neurotypical, I guess, I guess they might have sort of been heard a bit more, but I was just focused on getting the job done. I was focused on not abandoning this task and actually getting it completed so we could all be out of here. Yeah, it's interesting how, how that 
you didn't really get that back though no you put in all that effort and then the next day i mean how did you respond when he said oh you're being suspended because your face didn't look right i mean Mm. i didn't it seems very illogical to me i didn't i didn't really i didn't really sort of know what to say i i didn't even really i didn't even really say much at that point um i you know when i was actually when i had the when i had the look of satan in my face Mm. i think i i may have made a made the odd comment saying yep just trying to get it done as fast as i can be nice if someone could help Something mm. like that, mm. you know, something like that. Um, yeah, so they said, yeah, they told me that. Um, I just worked the rest of, I worked the rest of that shift I turned up for, and then I just went home. Yeah, and then that was it. Uh, to be fair, I, I, I mean, afterwards, when I, I mean, when I eventually got a new job afterwards, I was quite lucky because the the previous boss of that place where I worked, um, I did write to them saying, oh, would you be able to? Would you be able to? Uh, I'd be very grateful if you could give me a reference for this next job, and you know, very kindly he did. Right. So he did. So he so he helped me. He helped me to get my next job. Mm-hmm. But at, at the time when I was working at this previous place, yeah, there was just. I think there was just that lack of understanding. Sure. Yeah. And I think I, I was speaking to a person that is autistic as well, and she was mentioning. Um, that in the previous job that he had, I always tell this story because it shocked me quite. Like I was, I was quite annoyed by her. <laughs> I was on her side, on yeah. her behalf. I was really uh, frustrated because I, I found it really an unf- like an unfair. It's like um, she finds it difficult to understand sometimes certain social contexts and social fa- like some faces and emotions, feelings. Can- so if someone sometimes she gives she gives a response to a situation that is not the right response, mm. but she doesn't see clearly why. Um, mm. So she, according to her bosses, she was passive aggressive. But for her, she just answered straightforward, a question that was made straightforward as well. So yeah. if you ask me a straightforward question, I will answer straightforward as well. <clears throat> yeah. And then she, she was accused of being passive aggressive. Yes. But she couldn't understand why she was passive aggressive. Yeah. So she asked the manager, okay, so tell me what happened, what I did, mm. and I can figure out next time how to not respond like that. Yeah. No, we can't tell you that. But, but if you cannot tell me what I did wrong, mm. how I'm going to correct myself That's, for the yeah. next yeah, or future it, situations. Yeah, but then, if they don't tell you what's um, wrong. And then, yeah. yeah, they were like pretty much doing her life help just because she was autistic. She, she, opened up saying I am I am and then they were trying just to probably get rid of her because it was easier uh, and then when she was mentioning to me I said look it just you just need to let know key people around you that if the situations are coming a mm-hmm. weird way let's say that way someone will help you and say wait 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 this is a misunderstanding let's reward the rewarding the situation let's rephrase this mm. i don't think she means to yeah. be rude she, she can come yeah. across in a rude way yeah. for, 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 for the other yeah. side there's that, there's that but it's, it's not it. actually what she really means to i just like let's rephrase and reward and everything clear up and i said to her don't worry just keep people around you that at some point you can say like can you come and give me a hand and then sorted but i think it was that simple it's like i'm a spanish i need some help to write some emails sometimes guy on for our first podcast um what was it um, andy, andy reed and he um he works he's like a coach for neurodivergent people 
And um, what he said, what he said was very interesting about what you guys are discussing about how if the if the if the understanding is there within within the group in the workplace, mm. yeah. these kind of misunderstandings don't seem it doesn't have to escalate into these kind of levels if people are just are just aware of oh you know this person may come across as rude but that's just for lack of a better phrase that's their style that's just the way they are as a, as a person to try and sort of. Mm. To try and kind of de-escalate yeah, situations. It's that, that assumption that somebody neurodiverse in the workplace is going to somehow cause trouble or be exactly. or be troubling. Is yes. that is that is that old cliche? And that's I think that's a lot of why a lot of neurodiverse people are afraid to disclose their neurodiversity in the workplace because of their treatment. Because if you if you don't say you're neurodiverse, they'll treat like they'll treat you like they'll treat you one way and that might overwhelm you. But if you do say you're neurodiverse, they might treat you another way that may come across as insanely condescending or yes. patronizing because yeah. they don't quite know how to deal with it. Mm. So it's a case of, it's a, it's a, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. Mm. It's a tricky one. Andy was saying is like, is, is what Dave was saying. You need to come, I think it's two parts coming together to the middle. It's not that they, it, it, not one or another it needs to be both together it's yeah. like if I want to understand you like you need to come across and say look this is my my difficulty or these are my difficulties or I might need help with this and then I say okay how I can help you let me know how and then I will do and I will make sure it yeah. happens is what I was saying like if I am not English and I need to write a really formal letter mm. I will always ask a colleague to say like can you read this can you tell yeah. me if it's if it sounds good to you if it sounds english because us we compose things in a different way the sentences are made in a different way so you always say like does it sound english to you that i need help with that this mm. i can ask for the help and i'm being given the help in the same way you come across and say look i i've got difficulties in can you help me out us yeah. and then i need to come towards you and be as you said because like neuro, neurotypical people yeah. understanding <clears throat> neurodiversity and neurodiversity having some flexibility to understand mm. neurotypical uh, and, and when a, you get that balance right that's that's what he was advocating that when you get that yeah. balance right that the workplace yeah. becomes and, and i think i think neurodiverse people take a little bit longer to process you know neurotypical individual just because it's a you know it's a, it's a new place of work it's a new environment it's a new duty you can meet all these new people they might operate differently so you're trying to learn a lot about people in a very short space of time so it's like it's like going to do your GCFCs and revising the morning of right so you're trying to take in all that information you're trying to take in all that information you get there you're like um who's the person again what i have to do again and then that's where i think the over sort of overwhelming side of things can come and that's probably why some people why people with neurodiversity in the workplace might sometimes struggle Mm-hmm. No, no, and I completely understand. Like, I understand why people don't want to disclose. This is what Andy was saying. Like, yes. pe- most of most of the neurodivergent people don't want to disclose they are neurodivergent because they know they are going to be treated in a different way. So they'd rather be making lots of effort of masking yeah. mm-hmm. and trying to hide. Because yeah. um, we're saying, but this is not fair. Because at the end of the day, this is not you, and you cannot be yourself, which is not fair. You should be yourself. You should be you, yeah. wherever you are. Um, but it's easier for them and they pay less cost when they are masking and mm. hiding it rather than when it's they also, are saying yeah. oh i'm actually it's the attention yeah, when they feel like they can be them when they feel <clears throat> like they can be themselves which i think obviously one that's why a lot of neurodiverse individuals may jump straight to masking because they feel like they can't really be themselves with anyone else or they try being themselves something's happened where it's backfired like 
drastically and then they go back to their default because they know it works. I think when you're a kid at school or like high school, like it's sort of less of a concern just because everybody's sort of like, sure. everybody's sort of still developing and sort of learning yeah. with their fit. And I think when you're an adult and actually you're, you know, forming connections and you're forming relationships, that's when you start to become, or when you're going for employment, that's when you start to become a little bit more aware of it or more self-conscious. Yes about that aspect of yourself mm. and that's where the uh, and that's where the whole um, do I disclose on this application form whether I'm autistic or not do I talk about talk about autism with these people is that it's knowing where you then stand mm. Mm. in your experience what, what do you um, what would you normally go for in that kind of scenario oh I don't really know because recent because with my recent job applications with my recent job applications I've done a mixture of disclosing it and not disclosing it I suppose for I suppose for acting jobs if I feel, if I read a character description of a role and I think the role might, it, it's implied the role might have an autistic edge to them, I make a note of saying that. So I say, mm. I also have a mild form of autism called Asperger's syndrome. Should that be relevant in any way to my application? Sure. And sometimes I just don't. And sometimes I might be lucky enough to be offered an audition. So I just turn up on the day. I'm just like, hi guys, any questions you want to ask about me? Fair enough. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag in, in your experience. Yeah, so, so. A, a bit of a mixed bag depending depending on the setting. Sure. Uh, and my current job I've got at the moment, I didn't disclose it at first. I think when I when I got there and when I um, when I started working there and when I started to get into a bit of a routine, that's when I sort of sort of started to drop the hints, as it were. I sort of started to say, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm I'm neurodiverse. I've got autism. And I think that's where that awareness came from. It. So I think once they sort of got to know me a bit more. I think that's where I could sort of drop it there, and they were like, "Oh yeah, no, that's that's really that's really that's really nice." And again, like you said earlier, was there kind of like a, a relief when you said it, like just so it's it's no longer like a, a thing that's mm. dwelling. I think it was because I think it, there wasn't really a reaction from it to sort of give it away. It was normalised at that point. Whereas in the past, like various job interviews, there's always been that pattern of either "Oh, interesting," or "Oh, like a." almost like a small red flag's gone up in your head yeah. or something Uh-oh. like that so I, I talk about in the show you get you get those one or two reactions and then that sets up how they see you for the rest of the day mm. and then you sort of go with, with, with the back of your head saying oh they reacted like this that means they must not like me or oh they said this that means they must be interested in me mm. so again it's sort of knowing where you stand sure. yeah. in, in those mm. types of settings okay. right so to close uh, the podcast today, what message of encouragement would you send to individuals that they are outside there, that they are autistic? Just to tell, what, what would you tell them? Oh, um, making it difficult for you, Daniel. Today. Oh yeah, man, making me, me work for it today. <laughs> I would say, you know, those are, you know those of you that are on the spectrum, you know, out there in the world's don't be afraid to be fearless if that makes sense yes you're going to need there are there are times when you are going to need to take risks and there are times when they might not pay off or that you might not get the reaction you were hoping for mm. but that's that's normal that's part of life and it's knowing when to then pick yourself back up and then move on to the next thing and i'm trying to think i'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this um it's to Never stop being curious as well, and never stop trying to make discoveries about other people or yourselves. Um, if if there's a group of people out there that aren't that keen on you, don't worry. There are people out there that will be. It doesn't have to be solely down to a specific group of individuals or 
an organization because the world now is a bit of a better place and autism starting to be more understood by by everybody now so yeah i say you know i say i say just be yourself because that's the best version of yourself you can be good well thank you thank you daniel um let us know what is your next show, what time, all of these things. So if someone wants to go and pop round, yes, highly recommended. By the way, absolutely. So the show is called um, the show is called Mine or Unapologetically Autistic, and it's a one man show about what life life is like growing up on the autistic spectrum and how autism is portrayed in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, the next showing is on at the Etc Theatre in Camden Town on. Sunday the 22nd of October both at 5pm and 7pm so it's one show after the next okay. great stuff mm-hmm. well in the meanwhile just for everybody to remember that we do um, some meetings here for parents carers if they want to come and put their questions here at the field house barn uh, next one is next month uh, we will put around we will put all the information in there in the on Facebook and in the media. Yep. That's great. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for coming thank today. You. Thank, thank you, Tony. No, thank you very much for having me. It's Our pleasure. Great. It's been lovely. Thank you thank so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, fourth episode. Is the fourth episode it of is indeed. podcast. So thank you very much for listening. Please do subscribe to our channel. And until next time, stay, stay on, on the, the spectrum. spectrum.